Would you turn with me to Psalm 16? There are two verses here that are extraordinary. Take these two verses to heart. Live out what is found here, and it's guaranteed that your life will take on a new happiness, a new sense of serenity and joy. It's an extraordinary passage. Psalm 16, look in verse 5. The psalmist says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The boundary lines. He's thinking back to when when Israel moved into the promised land and they took the land and God established where each tribe would live. There were boundaries set up and within each area that God specified, that's where the people would settle. Except one tribe, the tribe of Levi, they had no allotment of land. Instead, they were told that God himself would be their lot. God himself. So they belonged to God and God belonged to them and they were to live off whatever God provided them. So here we have the psalmist talking about his own life, his own lot in life. And he thinks of himself as a kind of Levite. He says that you are what I have, God. You are my joy and delight. And he says, my boundaries have fallen in pleasant places because I have you and I can live on whatever you give me. What the psalmist is saying is that what God has given me is enough, enough for me to live in joy, to live with happiness before him. Well, that's not always easy to live out, but if we we take home this, this truth in our heart, how God does provide for us and how he establishes for all of his people their place to live, their way to live, how God provides for us, and that ultimately how God gives himself to us. If we understand that, it makes all the difference. Now, when I was in my 20s, in fact, mid-20s, I did something, well, I look back and I wonder, why did you do that? I started a church. Let me tell you, starting a church is no glamorous thing. It is a challenge. It is, in many ways, more demanding than you could ever imagine, and it's emotionally and spiritually demanding, in part because because it's not like the whole world is waiting for your church to begin. It's not like the whole world comes flooding into the doors and says, oh, what a great preacher you are. It doesn't work like that. Instead, you find yourself sometimes working follow ground, and you find yourself thinking, you know, this isn't going so well. And you find yourself looking around at others, And they seem to be doing so well. Their churches are full. 
People are interested in hearing from that preacher, but me, not so much. And those comparisons start weighing on you, and you start wondering, what's wrong with me? Why am I not succeeding? See, I wanted to serve God. I really did want to serve God. But at that time, I didn't quite have a clear understanding of just how much my wanting to be successful, my wanting to be someone special, had had mixed in with the desire to serve God. And so it was a hard road in many ways. And you know, you look at other people, like I say, you compare yourself with them, and, and sometimes, sometimes it really hurts. It hurts so much that there's always the temptation to start finding fault with the other person. You, know, you find fault with them. Well, they're not really doing things right. Well, of course they're not, because you want to take them down a notch because you feel so bad in comparison. We do that all the time. So many criticisms that get voiced of other people, it's nothing but envy and jealousy that's at work. And so, so that's where I was. I, God was, was helping day by day, but I was frustrated much of the time. And I remember when I came across this song, and it seemed so counter to what my experience was in that moment. Lord, you alone are my portion and cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I mean, where I was right then, what I was doing right then, God was present. God was present to bless. The question was, was I present to God? Or is I so determined to get what I thought I needed and thought I wanted that I couldn't live in peace? Well, actually, it sort of went back and forth. Even after this passage came, it just went back and forth. Sometimes I thought, you know, God, all that matters is you and serving you right where I am. Other times it's like, God, I've got to do better. I've got to do more. Somehow I have to prove that I have a right to this small little space that I dwell in the earth. Some years ago, um, Andy Stanley preached a sermon called The Land of Ur. Have you ever heard the sermon? Maybe you heard it online. It's been listened to, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of times. The Land of Ur. In it, he says, there is always someone who is better, richer, stronger than you. There's always someone who is more attractive, always someone who's more successful, who's more prominent than you. And if you find yourself in the land of Ur, where you're making all these comparisons with other people, measuring yourself by that and becoming discontent because of it, he says you quickly learn that there is no win in comparison. Have you found that? There's just no win. I mean, there's always someone who's going to outstrip you. And so here you are struggling, struggling. See, it's this that fuels envy, and envy brings unhappiness. 
Now, I think that's intuitively obvious, but you don't have to take my word for it. A lot of research has been done on this. In fact, there was a research article, I read this last week, from 2018 in the Journal of Social Science and Medicine. They they did a study that took in 18,000 people randomly selected. And what they found was that people who experienced a high level of envy were far more prone to poor mental health than those who did not. Not only that, those who lived with envy were predictably more likely to be dissatisfied with their lives in the days ahead and in their future than those who did not. Envy makes us miserable. It takes us to a dark and unhappy place. And it's actually gotten worse. I mean, the mental health of of North Americans has never been worse. Depression and anxiety, and it's not unrelated to envy. And that envy has been fueled in part by social media. Social scientists have actually come up with a term for it. They call it Facebook envy. They have. Facebook envy because, because people are putting up their best pictures and their most exciting experiences. And you you start scrolling through all those Facebook pages and your life feels so ordinary in comparison. And you start feeling like the boundary lines haven't fallen in such a good place for me. Look Look at them. Their curated life seems so much better than my life. I mean, it even gets the pictures themselves on something like Instagram. You know, when, when, <laughs> when I lived in Baton Rouge, um, my, my oldest sister started dating a man who was a fairly prominent artist. In fact, he had painted the portrait for the governor of Louisiana. And once he started dating my, my daughter, my dad got to know him, and he thought, you know what? I'm going to commission him to paint a portrait of my wife. And so he did. He painted a portrait of my mom. When he finished it, I remember looking at it thinking, wow, she's at least 15 years younger in this, this portrait than she actually is. I told him, I said, you know, it's interesting. It looks just like my mom, but it looks like my mom about 15 years ago. She looks great. And he said, yes, in, in our field, we call it a salon portrait. <laughs> There's a name for it, a salon portrait. But now you go on Instagram, they have filters. You don't even have to pay a portrait artist anymore to fix things up. They've got filters. And so we find ourselves comparing ourselves with all this online reality and unreality. And we find out there is no win in comparison. It just fuels the envy that makes us so very unhappy. And the discontent, the discontent. In the verses that we read a few moments ago, what what shines out is gratitude and contentment. But that's what we find so very, very difficult to reach today. There's a professor, a man named, um, what is his name? Daniel, I'm drawing a blank. 
Cornaro. I got it. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is getting worse and worse. First, I can't remember Ronnie Higgins' name, which, you know, that, that's forgettable. But now, <laughs> I was just making a joke up there. I've started writing down the names of everyone's getting baptized, and I stick it on a little card there because I just have that fear. I'm going to go blank. I'm going to go blank. I don't want that to happen. Well, I just went blank. So Kunaro, he, he, it's an interesting thing. He was doing a study of emotions across the world. And what he was interested in was, are the emotions that human beings experience universal or are they shaped by the culture? And if they're shaped, how so? And so he started traveling with his team and they did interviews all around the world trying to determine that. And they actually decided they were going to go to one of the few truly unvisited, isolated communities on earth. This is a small community in the Bhutan, which is in the Himalaya Mountains, just on the southern portion of China, northern portion of India, right in that area. And with his team, he had to travel, you know, through a jungle, down a mountainside. They had to ford a river. They had to go back up a mountainside. And they finally came to this tiny little town where you had something like 200 families there. And this is a place, there's no electricity, there's no internet, there are no cell phones, there's no printed material. This was one of the handful of places on earth that had never been contacted by outsiders before. It's interesting. So what they did, they went and they, they brought one laptop computer with all the, the data and they, they showed pictures to the people of various emotions. That is, people on just showing faces where people were experiencing different emotions. And what's interesting is, is these people could identify reliably what those emotions were. Of course, they were using their own language to, to express them, but they could identify those emotions. Well, later... He's writing up the results of all this, and he's working with a translator who had helped them to communicate with the people. And as they're going down through the emotions, they came to contentment. And the translator said, that's, that's not like all the other emotions. He said, this one is special. This is the one our wise teachers have told us to seek, contentment. Well, what does contentment mean in your language? And he gave it to him in another, another language. I don't recall what the word was. <laughs> yes, I have blanked out on that too. <laughs> and what it meant was knowledge of enough. You've got enough. You don't need more. When, when this was shared, it was like, it was, he, he said it was like lightning going off. And he felt just this, you know, chill bumps going down his spine. He realized something, something important was exposed here. Because you look at the West, 
You look at the West, and we are obsessed with happiness. We want to find happiness so badly, and yet we are so miserable. You go to Amazon, and you will find that there are 20,000 self-help books with the word happiness in the title. 20,000. You'd think we know something about happiness, but we don't. That's why we're miserable. He realized something fundamental was wrong here. And so when he was hired at Yale, he gathered up a new research team and they began to review all the philosophers who had written in the past few thousand years. They began, the religious teachers, they also studied the research scientists and their results over the past 200 years. And when they got to the bottom line, they saw something as clear as and simple as you could ever imagine. He said, what you see is that people have two basic strategies to find happiness. The first one, he says, is the more strategy. I want more money, more success, more notoriety. I want more of everything. I want to get, get, get. And the problem with that strategy is it's not sustainable. As it's pointed out, he points out that if, if you know, somebody handed you a $1,000 check, that would make you happy. But the moment you put it in your wallet, that happiness would begin to diminish. And you'd need another check before you'd feel good again. In fact, it probably needs to be 10,000, not 1,000. The problem is that when you get, 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 it wears off. And not only that, you can't get infinitely. Theologians actually have a term for this. They call it concupiscence. Now, if you've ever heard the word before, it has this vague association with sexuality, but that's not theologically what it, what it really refers to. Concupiscence is this centering in yourself where you're trying to find happiness by drawing everything you want into yourself and into your life. It's the more strategy, and it doesn't work. But then... There's also the enough strategy. And what was so interesting is as these researchers dug into the history, they found that the ancients almost never spoke about happiness. When they were talking about what we call happiness, they spoke of contentment. It was the strategy of enough. I don't need more. I can be grateful for what I have. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, says the psalmist. I have a delightful inheritance. That doesn't mean there aren't difficult things that happen in our life, things that are unpleasant, emotions that are really difficult. That's certainly true. So when we talk about contentment, we have to talk about a long-term view of life. There are going to be ups and downs along the way. We all know that. But God has 
overseeing all of our lives and the circumstances of our lives and even our very nature when he creates us. He's overseen it in such a way that we can come to know him and we can serve him and find our purpose in serving him and in that find our blessing. That he has provided for us. There are boundaries set up and within those boundaries, there are many blessings that we tend to take for granted that we need to give thanks for. And then the boundaries actually work in in two ways. I mean, it keeps things in, it also excludes things, right? So there are things we don't get, maybe things we want, but that too is part of the good God's sovereign ruling over our lives. Have you ever thought as much as you'd like to be more attractive than you are, that you're feeling self-conscious about your appearance may actually contribute toward making you a better person? Have you ever thought about that? A kinder person? maybe a humbler person, a more thoughtful person? Have you ever thought that that success you wanted that turned into failure has actually made you a wiser person, someone who knows what life really is about and what ultimately matters and what doesn't matter? Have you ever thought that that loneliness that you feel, because there isn't that one that you, you marry, or perhaps you were married and now you're widowed or divorced and you find yourself alone again. And it's not easy. No one's saying it's easy and no one's saying that you shouldn't pursue other relationships. But have you ever thought that in that loneliness, you may actually find God? You might find God in a whole new way. You might connect with other people in a whole new way? Have you ever thought that it may be God's purpose to bless you with the boundary line falling, not where you would have chosen, but where he in his wisdom has chosen? See, that's what I couldn't quite get when I was in my 20s. I, I knew where I wanted the lines to fall, but God had them fall somewhere else. And so contentment and gratitude for what God has given. That's what rescues us from envy. That's what clears out all those comparisons in which you can't possibly win. And that's what enables you to live a happy and joyful life. And you don't have to fight for that. See, a lot of times, We're struggling and we're striving, trying to get more and be more. But, you know, you really don't have to do it. The psalmist says, you've made my lot secure. God has already cleared out a space for you. It's a space for you, just like you are. A space for you, even with your flaws. You know, the Bible says that God created all things good. He didn't create all things perfect. You ever thought about that? For the Hebrews, to say something was good wasn't to say it was perfect. It was to say it served its purpose well. And so God has created you to serve his purpose. And he's created you that you can have a relationship with him. And so he's already cleared out space. You've got this lot in life that he's cleared out for you. And you're not perfect. 
but you weren't designed to be perfect. But by his grace, we can be good, but we don't have to be perfect. And so it's there that we live. What we have to do is learn to have a radical trust in the goodness of God and then be willing to be who we are and then to live our best life before God, not someone else's life, not some grandiose vision of what we think our life ought to be like, but our own life that God has given us, not looking for someone else's inheritance. I have a delightful inheritance, and it's the one God has given me. There simply is no other way to real happiness, lasting happiness, than this way. And it's the way in these two small verses that become so plain and so obvious. We can all get there by trusting God. And, and for some of us, that means we have to embrace who God made us. And you can't do that until you trust in your creator. And that's what, that's what it means, really, to become a Christian. It's to trust in your creator, your creator who made you and your creator who forgives and restores that cleans up the mess that we make. That's why when he sent Jesus, Jesus is a savior because he saves us from ourselves. So yes, I'm talking about just finding acceptance of yourself and your lot in life and trusting that God is behind it, but you really can't get there until you entrust your whole life to God and ask for his forgiveness. We all need forgiveness and ask him to come into your life in a new way. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus as our Savior. Thank you for, for being there to forgive our sins, to cleanse us, Lord, but also to affirm us, to open up to us the life that you intend. Thank you that you are our inheritance. And everything that you give, Lord, is good because everything that you give leads us, leads us ultimately back to you. Lord, would you forgive us when we have turned away from what you have given to the things for which we lust, the things we covet? Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for the envy that causes us to be restless and dissatisfied with who you've created us to be and the circumstances in which you've placed us. Help us, Lord, to walk with you where we are, content in your grace that is working in us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.